back in the fur shed for episode 55 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood, and the Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. And if you hear that crackling in the background, that is a fresh piece of wood in the fire of the stove of the fur shed. Things are looking pretty good in the fur shed. But first, I want to mention a little more about Cots Brothers, uh, the sponsors of the podcast. Thanks uh, to those guys for uh, supporting this endeavor. And uh, you can check them out. Sign up for their newsletter at katzbros.com. Take a look at the offering they have. they got a lot of stuff, a lot of trapping supplies. Um, One of the things I think that is unique is they have a whole pile of books and DVDs and a lot of stuff that they have made themselves. So I'm just going to scroll in here. Cots Bros Books. Let's start with that. I always like to see uh, different trapping books. So you've got the Encyclopedia of Lure and Bait Making by Kellen Cots. I've got that. Uh, Awesome resource. Open Water Beaver Trapping by Kyle Cots. I picked up a couple of things from reading that book and really enjoyed it. Probably caught me a few extra beaver last winter, actually. Uh, the Black Book of Coyote Trapping, a new book written by Kellen Cots. That's a really, really useful book, really neat. Uh, Trapline Principles, Eight Keys to Success by Kellen. Kyle has Land Trapping Made Simple. I actually have all of these books so far. Um, and then Raccoon Trapping Made Simple by Kyle Cots. So lots of books available. Check those out. They also have DVDs and lures and baits and traps and a pile of other things. So take a look at Cots Bros. Uh, let them know you heard about them from Jeremiah at Trapping Today. All right. So let's get into the episode. Um, I am getting ready to go check some traps tomorrow. We're trying to get a podcast recorded ahead of time. And I wanted to talk a little bit about a few things. First off, I mentioned the fur shed. Oh, it's so much nicer to have a clean place to work. And a fresh coat of paint makes an incredible difference to a place. So I was struggling for a while. I had a bunch of projects going on in here in the fur shed. One of them, I was making a bunch of more Lynx exclusion devices. And it was a pile of sawdust and a table and pieces of wood and tools and power tools and other tools and a million other things. And it was quite a process, but I got it all cleaned up because I got sick of it. And I'm just about to the point where I've got a freezer that's half full of fur and of, of carcasses that I need to be skinning out. So I got to the point where I needed to clean things up and... I got the floor bare and got all the stuff out and organized. And I looked at the floor and said, whoa, that is not looking very good. So, you know, you talk about, I don't know, I probably had 30, 40 beaver carcasses in here at one point last spring. And all the other animals coming in and out and all the blood and guts and grossness. Uh, the lure making, uh, all kinds of lure making going on in here. The uh, traps, um, old rusty traps and all kinds of stuff that falls off of them as they're bouncing off the floor and coming in and out. So I kind of decided I just got to paint 
paint over all this. So <laughs> I swept it up and vacuumed it and cleaned it as much as I could. And then I just started painting it with a fresh coat of white paint. And it doesn't look perfect, but boy, it's starting to look quite a lot better. It feels clean and bright, even though it's not the, really all that clean. But good enough for me. So it feels good getting ready to start skinning. Um, when I when I do get into the beaver trapping, which will be probably won't be for another three or four weeks, probably three weeks from the time you hear this. Um, I when I work up beaver and I nail them down to the boards, I like to set the board down on the floor and work on the floor. So I kind of want to have a clean floor to be able to do that. And I. Apparently, I, I will have one if I don't screw this up too bad in the next few weeks. All right. Well, I talked about my long trap line way out in the woods, but me and my boy decided to set a short one close to the house. So uh, we've, we've been seeing weasel tracks going back and forth to check the cows. And I mentioned to my boy the other day, I actually had him in the fur shed when I was working on stuff. and I was trying to keep him occupied and he seemed pretty interested in these boxes so I said what if we build a couple what if we build a cubby for weasels and we set a weasel trap and go trap out back where we, I saw those tracks so he thought that would be pretty cool so he and I worked together and built a little cubby uh, it was just a, a small cubby with a I put wire mesh on the back of it and the front of it was open and I was just going to set some bait in there and some weasel lure and a number one long spring in the front of it, like I used to do. So we got that built, and the next day, he said, Daddy, we're going to go set the trap. Said, yep, we're going to go set it. So we went out in the dark after I got home from work, and I brought the cubby out, and I brought the long spring, and I went to set it, and all of a sudden, I something clicked for me in the back of my mind I said hang on a second you can't do this the way you used to do it so uh, I I try not to be a complainer when it comes to regulations and, and rules because it's just uh, funny I, I hear there's so many people that spend all their time complaining and me and a couple other guys are out there catching fur and you know we're trapping you could you can come the way I see it, you can complain and moan about things or you can get over it and just go do what you can do legally. Go catch fur. Go work hard. And there's a time to complain and there's a time to argue and to fight for regulation changes or resist regulation changes. Uh, but there's a time to, to accept the fact that this is what we're living under right now and if you want to trap, you got to play by the rules. Um, I mean, I I don't know how else to to deal with it. I'm not going to quit trapping because I don't like the rules. So anyway, uh, we've got this big mess with the links uh, that are threatened under the Endangered Species Act, and the rules are pretty uh, complex when it comes to lynx trapping. So it turns out that if I were to have set this trap. I would be breaking at least three or four laws um, where it would have been completely legal before and, and there is virtually no chance of catching a lynx. If I had caught a lynx, it would be fine. But anyway, uh, 
I went back to the house and I got the book and I kind of reminded myself that, you know, yes, you're weasel trapping with a number one long spring, but that's still considered a foothold trap and it still falls under the regulations in the lynx protection zone for any foothold traps that are set. So no traps can be set above ground or snow level. This was a trap in a box above the snow inside of the box. Uh, all foothold traps have to have three swivels, uh, one by the trap, one in the middle of the chain, and one by the anchor point. This trap was the number one long spring. It had one swivel right at the end of the spring. The chain has to be mounted to the center third of the base plate. This chain was mounted at the end of the spring. It's a number one long spring. That's how they're designed. And there's uh, one or two other regular... Oh, the trap circle has to be free, clear of any debris. I was just going to wire the trap to a tree, which would be a large piece of debris that would cause entanglement within the trap circle as well as a few other small trees that were present within that trap circle as well. So quite a quite a complex piece of regulation to navigate. So basically we just took a Lynx exclusion device and set it with a 120 inside of it. It was one I pulled off the trap line earlier and uh, stuck it there instead. So we've been back a couple times and haven't caught anything and there's been tracks around it, but a lot of times the weasels... I got them set up with Connie pans, which helps a lot because with triggers they'll squeeze, slide in between the triggers and won't get caught. With the Connie pan, they they usually step on it, and, and it's a better chance of catching them. But it's still not 100%. So uh, we're working on it. Uh, but we went back out today, and I get kind of the point where you know we checked the trap for a couple of days, nothing. Uh, we don't really want to see if we can catch something. So we, I said, why? What do you think about if we set a, f a few other traps. So we took four other Lynx exclusion devices and we took the Yamaha Bravo, which I got running, and we rode around the farm and found a few other places. He picked one that was under this tree root way in this little wet spot. It was kind of a nightmare to get into to bring that box. Of course, I had to do it while he watched. But he, we put that in and uh, we actually found a set of fisher tracks that had come around the farm which is kind of embarrassing i'm going out 30 miles in the woods to set trap for a fisher and i got one that just ran by the farm of course they come through and he may not be back for a long time i hadn't it's the first fisher track i've seen here uh all 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 winter or the past month since we've had snow and uh we saw one or two sets of weasel tracks not very not very many, not, nothing recent, uh, but we set four more, so we've got a little line of five traps we're going to be running, and I hope to have a weasel in one of those for us to uh, to celebrate. So anyway, that's the fun around the farm. We're, we're still trapping despite the rules. I actually made a YouTube video on that. I think I called it keeping it legal on the weasel trapping in Maine or something like that. And it was kind of funny. So the first shed looks good. I actually put up my NAFA Top Lot Trapper certificate. Uh, if you had any anything, uh, you get the mailing from NAFA if you send your fur there. And if you had a Top Lot, if you had any of your furs in a Top Lot for any species, you will get that certificate in the mail with your 
a NAFA mailing. Uh, I got one for Weasel, the top lot of Weasel. Oh, it was Northern Ermine in the May auction and averaged $4.30. So, hey, what the heck, 4 bucks for Weasel, pretty good. I think I actually had one at FHA that I got 7 bucks for. Um, but anyway, that was that was pretty cool. Um, I stuck that certificate up there. Hopefully I'll get a few more in future years. It, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, everybody kind of gets one once in a while and, and after after some time, but it's kind of cool to know that, you know, you had a fur that was considered a very high quality item. So, all right, well, cleaning up the fur shed, setting a little few local traps, checking the long line. Um, but what I really wanted to get to in this episode, because I didn't have time to do it in the last episode, was the Hunters of the Northern Forest. So we're going to continue our reading. And two episodes ago in uh, 53, I did a reading from this book by Richard K. Nelson. He was an anthropologist back in the 1970s who studied uh, peoples of the Arctic. And he went to the village of Chokitsik, Alaska, which is uh, northeast of Fort Yukon along the Chokitsik is on the Porcupine and Black Rivers. And this was a village of native Alaskan uh, Kuchin. And they were relied on trapping for a large portion of their income and, and their lifestyle. This was pretty awesome. And I had a really amazing opportunity. I actually... Uh, w- was in contact with a trapper who listens to the podcast that traps and lives in that area, in that general area, and has a trap line very close to Chakitsik. He actually told me I was pronouncing it wrong. It's not Chakitsik, it's Chakitsik. And uh, he knew he he knew quite a few of the people who were in this book back in the 70s. Of course, they're all uh, gone, passed away now. But he still traps that area, and that was just, uh, I, I've always dreamed of going up there and trapping there, so it was it was really exciting for me to be able to have a conversation with him and hopefully keep on having conversations in the future about trapping up there. And someday I will uh, make enough money to be able to afford a trip uh, to trap up there in Alaska. Um, looking at it right now, the uh, the first part is, is getting to know somebody who uh, would generously host you to trap. Um, and the second part is actually getting there. It's uh, the cheapest plane ticket I could find was about $1,400. And then you have to buy an Alaska non-resident trapping license, which is another $400. So you're already like two grand before you even start and of course a lot of other things other expenses to consider as well so it it's uh, not going to be easy but it's a, a good long-term goal I'm not I'm not over the hill yet I'm young enough I think I can can achieve that at some point uh, hopefully hopefully within five to ten years so uh, we'll see how it goes we'll see how things go with the, the podcast and the, the website and and everything else and maybe I'll be able to do some reporting from up there sometime but until then, uh, we can't be there, but we can think about it. 
we can dream about being in Alaska even though we're not there. So let's take a little bit of a, a reading from Hunters of the Northern Forest. Page 155, Trapping Season. The Black River Kuchin honor trapping seasons established annually by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game and indulge in only minor hedging around the closing dates for some species. When fur animals are encountered during the off-season, they are not molested in any way, with the occasional exception of the edible beaver and muskrat. There are several reasons why the legal season is respected. First, the transient Kuchin do not kill animals needlessly. Since the fur is not prime at other times, and the meat of most fur bears is not desired as food, there is no cause to kill them except in season. Second, they have accepted the conservation ethic. I do not know if it predates contact. Realizing that animals are best saved for times when they, when they are most useful. And third, they had some trouble with game wardens in the past. A few arrests were made and minor fines were levied, but this was enough to inspire a fear of the law. The legal trapping season for most species opens the 1st of November. There's generally enough snow for good travel by this time, and some men begin setting traps in the vicinity of Chakitsik immediately, limiting their activities to the nearby area. Trappers make a concerted effort to move out to the main trap lines by November 15. They often say that if a man does not set out by that date, there's little use in going trapping at all, because it's important to get started before deep cold sets in and curtails the activity of men and animals alike. Heavy trapping continues from mid-November into December, as long as the weather holds out, then comes a midwinter slowdown. February and March are said to be very good months for trapping because animals are active again after the coldest months have passed. Around March, however, most trappers show a decided waning of interest. They begin looking forward to pulling out their traps, although a few keep on through the spring beaver and muskrat seasons. For most of the modern Kuchin, the season for active trapping runs from mid-November until sometime in March. If muskrats are abundant, there is a resurgence in April and May, when trapping for these animals is best. Trap lines. This is really interesting stuff when it comes to trap lines. As they are defined and practiced by the transit Kuchin, trap lines are areas in which individuals or families have exclusive rights to all fur bears. These rights explicitly do not include any resources other than fur animals, and other kinds of game are hunted without respect to their territoriality. The boundaries of individual trap lines generally do not consist of imaginary lines drawn around a given tract of country, but instead are rather hazily defined zones, which come to be regarded as the limits of a particular man's territory. It would be very difficult to put trap lines on a map, because they are defined primarily in terms of trails along which a man sets his traps and snares, and lakes, sloughs, and creeks to which he has exclusive trapping rights. Thus, a trapline is often a circuitous complex of trails, plus a certain unspecified amount of surrounding territory and a number of bodies of water along these trails. Traplines belonging to different individuals often cross each other and interdigitate in very complicated ways. People seem to know intuitively how far apart they should keep their trapline trails in order to give another, one another a good-sized territory but there appear to be no clear boundaries beyond these areas surrounding each man's trails and the lakes in which he's considered to own. Trap lines are in a constant state of flux, now that there is much unutilized land available here. If a man wishes to move into an unused area, all he needs to do is make a trail through it 
or clear out an old one that has become overgrown with brush. If he uses that trail for several years, the line is recognized as his. But if he leaves it unused for an equal time, anybody who wants it may take it over. In a few cases where the same family has made and used a large number of trails through a given region for many years, that region appears to be, be considered the property of the family occupying it. Thus, an outsider would not make a trail into the region without obtaining permission from the owners. Most trap lines, however, are apparently defined only as a number of trails and lakes. So the country around Shakitsik is interlaced by a large number of trails, radiating out from the village and fingering into hills, valleys, lakes, creeks, and rivers. The trails are far more numerous than any one man can remember, exist in widely different states of repair and detectability, and are used by varying numbers of men each year. Trails can be classified into three types. Actually, this uh, there's a schematic here that shows an example of uh, a series of trails on a trap line, a couple of different trap lines. Number one, main trails. This includes major trails used by a large number of individuals each winter for travel to trap line cabins or hunting areas. So this is like the main highway. Anyone can set traps along main trails, wherever he wishes, even a few feet away from another man's set. Snares cannot be set in the middle of these trails as is done in the more private ones. Trapping trails. These are generally used by only one man who sets his traps along them and claims exclusive rights to the fur resources occurring here. Other persons may use these trails on a limited basis should they occasionally travel through the area. They will probably be inconvenienced by snares in the trails, however. Number three, side lines. Each trapper makes short trails a few miles long that branch off from his trapping trails. These generally run through good trapping areas which are off his general direction of travel. Some take only an hour or so to run, others require a whole day by dog team or on foot. Usually they are narrow and crooked and many snare, many trail snares are set in them. In addition to obtaining trap lines by clearing or reopening trails, Indians may acquire them through bequest or inheritance. Several lines now in use around Chakitsik were obtained in this way, in every case by a man from his father. A third way to acquire trap lines is by purchase a method which has been utilized occasionally over the years. And I would note here that uh, that's from the time this was written till today, that's actually been a very common way of trap lines being transferred is, is purchasing the lines. And in Alaska, there's no registered trap line, so you can't buy the rights to an area. But there's kind of a, a common courtesy, and which is respected by the vast majority of people, that you don't mess with the guy's area. So... Uh, these areas are protected to the extent that you could purchase a trap line from somebody. All you're purchasing is their cabins and their traps, uh, oftentimes, but usually it's the cabins and the trails, sometimes the traps, sometimes the snowmobile, and you're purchasing kind of an agreement from them that they will not trap there anymore. Um, and, and for the most part, that is honored by by the, the seller and it's honored by other people who have respected those trap lines for a long time. So it's a system that seems to work quite well. This does not mean that a man who uses a trap line is certain to be its owner. In the first place, many of the trappers operating out of Chakitsik today either do not live there all year round or have not been there long enough to establish their own lines. These men trap as partners of men who own trap lines. In this case, the two men generally utilize different trails, make their own sets, and keep whatever they catch. 
Trap lines can also be rented, either for cash or percentage of the take. Sometimes a man will allow someone else, such as brother or close friend, to use part or all of a line. This is commonly done with a beaver house or muskrat lake that the owner does not plan to use himself. The Kuchin are careful not to violate another man's territory by setting traps in it, or to bother someone else's sets. The possibility of stealing fur from one another is apparently so remote that it's never even discussed. With few exceptions, trapline trails, sidelines, muskrat lakes, and beaver houses are left strictly alone for the use of their acknowledged owners. People even avoid traveling on another person's trail as much as they can. Since each person owns a number of trails and lakes, sometimes in widely separated areas, it's hard for everyone to know just which ones are owned at a given time. If a man discovers a trail or lake he'd not know of previously, he'll probably ask neighboring trappers about it before using it. If he sets there without inquiring first, he may find himself kicked out by someone who claims it. In the years when trappers stayed out of their in their main cabins all winter, their trap lines were extensive and complex. They usually formed large circuits with a number of cabins spaced out about a day's travel apart. Sidelines that ran out from these cabins required an extra day or part of a day to check during each run of the circuit. The time required to make complete round of the line varied from one to two weeks. It is difficult to estimate the length of such lines, but they perhaps ran between 100 and 250 miles. Until the 1940s and 50s, there were such active trap lines all over the Black River country, far beyond areas that are ever seen by the Chalkitsik people today. In the late 1940s, about a quarter of the Fort Yukon region, including the Black River, was unclaimed, and some 15% comprised inactive trap lines. So think about that. A quarter, 25% not claimed, and 15% was lines that were claimed but were not active. Um, I would venture to say that today that a number is far greater, uh, areas that are just not being trapped at all. Uh, today, and that was the late 40s, and today being the 70s, the amount of unused territory is far greater than it was 20 years ago. The country is definitely exploited far below its capacity because there are relatively few trappers, many of whom make only a desultory trapping effort. The few lines which are consistently subject to heavy exploitation are probably restocked from the surrounding regions. The only area trapped to the point where fur is always hard to find is that immediately surrounding the village. And that was the 70s, I'd say in the 2018, uh, a lot of that area is probably not being trapped at all. Three distinct types of trap lines are used by the modern Chakitsik Indians. Number one, village lines. These are short trap lines, only a few miles in length, which are usually checked on foot from Chakitsik. Old men who are no longer able to make extended trips frequently set out these short lines. Number two, single circuit. This is a common modern trap line which is run with a dog team or snowmobile. It is in the form of a long circuit which starts and ends at the village, generally without sidelines or with very short ones. This type of line may be very long, up to 100 miles if a snowmobile is used, so that one or two cabin stops are required along the way. Often, however, it is short enough to be run in a single day. Number three, circuit sideline complex. This is the largest type of modern trap line, requiring the most time to run and closely reflecting the traditional pattern. It usually consists of a main trail which leads to the principal trap line cabin then a long circuit trail that runs out from the cabin and returns to it. 
in one or more side lines that branch out either from the circuit or from the cabin itself. Generally, there are cabins along the circuit, which takes from one to four days to run. Traps that are set along the main trail where anybody can set, the circuit trail, and the sidelines. Sidelines, incidentally, are usually a single straight trail run both ways rather than a circuit. Some trappers use a snowmobile for their level trails and a dog team for circuits or sidelines in hilly country. A single person may operate more than one trap line during a given season. For example, one man had four widely separated lines in 1969-70. In all, 16 trap lines were operated by Chakitsik Kuchin during the winter of 69-70. Of these, three were local village lines, seven were single circuits requiring one or two days to run, and six were large circuit sideline complexes. I'd like to run a large circuit sideline complex. I think that'd be pretty awesome. These 16 lines were owned by 12 different persons, but were trapped by a total of 19 men, because a number of partnerships were formed between trapline owners and non-owners. It is difficult to delineate the total area exploited by Chalkitsik trappers, because the number and size of lines which are used vary tremendously from year to year. The major trapping areas extend east into the Black River and Salmon River country, along, south along the Grass, Sucker, and Little Black Rivers, west along the Black and Porcupine Rivers, and north and east in the Porcupine River country. There is a tendency for various trap lines to be somewhat specialized for particular fur species. Men who trap in hilly country make good catches of marten, wolf, and wolverine, for example whereas the flats are best for lynx, mink, muskrat, and beaver. A man whose trapline encompasses a variety of habitats may decide to specialize in certain species. If lynx prices are high, he might concentrate his effort in the flats and stay out of the hilly marten country. Each trapline has a number of trails which are intended specifically for the exploitation of particular species, such as a mink line or marten line, and so on. Trappers follow a wide variety of setting and checking routines, depending on the length of their lines, distance from the village, means of transportation, weather conditions, and a desire to return home. Most men stay out only one to three days, but a few will remain away for a week to ten days. Now, in 2018, I think very few would stay out more than one day. Very few want to stay overnight anywhere. Regardless of how long they are on the trapline, all men agree they like to return to the comforts of home as quickly as possible. The Kuching carry out all trapping and hunting activities at what seems to be a very fast pace and feel that a good outdoorsman is always one who can work rapidly. In trapping, the more sets a man can make in a day, the more efficient he will be at catching animals. Occasionally, haste is carried to such an extreme that it results in carelessness. The first trip to the line, when sets are made, usually takes about twice as long as the later visits to check them. Traps should be checked every four to ten days, and a good trapper tries not to leave them any longer. On each trip, he checks all of his lines once, removing game and resetting the traps, then returns home to let them work again. If lines are checked too frequently, not enough fur will be taken to make the effort worthwhile. The longer he waits, the more fur a trapper will find in his sets. But if he waits too long, he'll lose some of his catch, and the traps with game in them will not be available for other animals that come along. Trappers are attentive to other factors in scheduling their runs, particularly the weather. When it's relatively warm, they expect good catches, because the animals will be moving around. But during cold snaps, the temperature is negative 30 to negative 50, 
the animals are not moving enough to make for good trapping. When a man sees an abundance of fresh fur sign as he checks his traps, he will probably wait only a short time before returning because he is sure there will be animals in his sets within a few days and he wants to retrieve them quickly. Now we'll go into the section on cabins and shelters. Adequate shelter is essential for trapping and other cold season activities. Whenever, whenever he travels far from the village, the Indian must keep in mind the availability of shelter, especially when he uses a snowmobile which can break down. Thus, he should know the location of every cabin in the area he travels and be able to construct adequate shelter on the spot should the cabin be out of reach. Temporary Camps The Chakitsik Kuchin much prefer to use a cabin or tent during the cold season, but are occasionally forced to camp without shelter because of an emergency or because they have decided to save weight by leaving their tent behind. Men who drive snowmobiles usually carry a sleeping bag and some food on any long trip but they camp out much less frequently than in the days when they relied exclusively on dogs. As long as the machine is running, they can travel a considerable distance to reach a cabin. An open-air camp is made by scraping away the snow to create a large space large enough for a sleeping bag. Then a windbreak of spruce boughs or young spruce is made around three sides of the sleeping place. If there's any wind, the open side is the leeward. A fire is built on the open side on clear ground parallel to the man's sleeping position. He piles heavy logs, such as slow-burning poplar, on the fire before retiring, and rekindles the blaze as frequently as necessary to keep warm. If it's especially cold, another spruce ball is built behind the fire to keep the heat inside the enclosure. When it is snowing, a slanting frame may be erected and a piece of canvas placed over the top. Under his sleeping place, Indian puts a thick layer of dried grass with a good bed of spruce bough tips on top. The old-timers always carried a caribou hide to use as a mattress on top of their layers of bedding. Today, caribou skin is hard to get, and so the Kuchin substitute a piece of canvas or a cloth. Before the white man came, the Kuchin used sleeping robes, heavy blankets made from caribou, hair, or muskrat skins, but the modern Kuchin prefer commercially made sleeping bags. Two down-filled bags are often used, one inside the other, for maximum warmth. But when it's 30 to 50 below, a good fire burning nearby is essential for comfort. One trick a winter traveler might use in extreme cold weather is to camp on high ground. Chakitsik people never mention this as a specific technique, but they're well aware that during cold snaps the temperature on a hill may be 10 to 20 degrees warmer than that in a low valley. The modern Chakitsik Kuchin prefer wall tents for temporary winter camps. They use small 7 by 7 feet commercially made canvas types. Using one of the snowshoes for a shovel, the Indian clears the ground of snow where he's going to erect his tent. Later on, this cleared space is covered by a layer of spruce boughs to help insulate the sleeping area. The walls of the tent have flaps that are held down by piling snow on them around the outside. In the not-too-distant past, the Black River people lived in large wall tents for much of the year, even through the cold winter months. These tents were usually surrounded by a low wall of logs to make them more weatherproof. Tents such as these and their smaller counterparts are held up by a pair of cross poles at each end of the ridge. Any tent can be heated with a small wood-burning stove, even in extremely cold weather. But as soon as the fire dies away, the cold penetrates. The Transit Kuchin and other northern Athapaskans live in powder snow country, and therefore cannot make snow block houses like the famous Eskimo igloo. But they used, in former times at least, a kind of snow shelter that was ingenious in its own right. The older adults living at Chakitsik have seen these snow houses, and presumably 
could make them if a situation called for it, but it's doubtful that snow shelters have been made here in recent times. To make one of these shelters, the Indian first uses a snowshoe shovel to pile a large heap of snow. Whenever snow is disturbed, it hardens quickly. Thus, within 30 minutes to an hour, the snow piles hard enough so that it can be hollowed out inside. After the space inside is made large enough, a fire is built on the floor, and when the walls begin to melt, the fire is extinguished so the surface of the walls freezes to a hard glaze. A small ventilation hole is made somewhere in the roof, and the house is ready for use. The Indian then spreads out his sleeping bag and closes the door by hanging his parka from wooden pegs stuck in the wall. One man who has used these shelters said they are so effective when he was inside he was unable to hear the wind blowing. Snow houses like this can presumably be made large enough for several people as their dimensions are limited only by the size of the snow pile. Log Houses The traditional Kachin used a variety of shelters. Some of these were built of logs and poles and were kind of native precursor to the log cabins introduced after contact with white men. Single and double lean-tos have been described for the Kuchin, as well as semi-permanent rectangular log houses. Every house in Chakitsik today and every dwelling in the surrounding country is a log cabin. The transient Kuchin are expert in the construction of cabins, from the tiny one-room line cabin to the large multi-room village home. These cabins are essentially identical to log houses that can be found almost anywhere in North America, except most have dirt-covered roofs. There's a considerable variation in the size and elaborateness of Kuchin cabins. Some of the village houses have two or three separate rooms, measure up to 40 feet long, and are fairly well furnished. Other village homes are smaller, sparsely furnished one-room one affairs measuring 15 to 25 feet square. Trapline cabins vary even more. There are large cabins which housed families during the heyday of trapping and are now used as main trapline cabins by men who still operate the old lines. The outcabins, scattered along various trap lines and built for stopover shelter, tend to be rather small and simple in construction. Some measure a scant 10 feet square and are just high enough to stand up inside. Some are fairly new and good repair, but more often they're very old and in sad condition. Obviously, the comfort and convenience of trap line cabins varies tremendously. The main cabins are often well built and almost as well furnished as the village homes. They may contain crude wooden beds and a variety of cooking utensils, tools, miscellaneous items. Some cabins are, are practically bare, however, containing almost nothing beyond a stove and a couple boxes to sit on. At home or in the line cabin, the Kuchin like to be comfortably warm. Houses are rarely cold and only occasionally become too hot. A temperature of 70 to 85 degrees is preferred. Trapline cabins vary greatly in warmth depending on their condition. Out cabins tend to have many cracks and openings which admit cold. Getting up on a frigid morning in one of these little houses is quite an experience. So that shelters. We'll do one more section in tonight's reading, and that is trapping productivity. This is pretty interesting to me, thinking about uh, trapping up there and what the trapping's like up there today. The Black River Kuchin have always been unusually successful trappers. Their country is extremely rich in fur animals, and the people have traditionally put a major effort into trapping. But even under the best conditions, trapping is an unstable way to make a living. The number of fur bears varies considerably, and fur prices are notoriously unstable, so a trapper never knows from one year to the next if his efforts will pay off. Like most other animals in the boreal forest environment, fur bears are subject to marked changes in population, 
which may be long-term and widespread, are highly localized and ephemeral. If there's anything a trapper cannot bet on, it's the size of his catch. He never knows from one year to the next, or from one day to the next, if he'll strike it rich or come home empty-handed. Any trapline is capable of outstanding productivity or nearly complete failure. And the same line may be a great producer one month and a total disappointment the next. Small wonder the Kuchin stressed the importance of luck in determining a trapper's success. The prices paid for furs are also subject to, be, to market if less precipitous fluctuations. Increases or decreases in the value of fur usually occur over a period of years, and so a trapper has a, some idea about the way prices are likely to go before the season begins, on the basis of trends in recent years. Dramatic price declines have been known to occur, however. There have been a number of peaks and lows in fur prices over the past century. In the early days, a pelt was worth very little by modern standards. At Fort Resolution in 1864, red fox, marten, wolf, or beaver would bring 50 cents. Mink were worth a dollar, wolverine a dollar and a half, muskrat only 18 cents. Fur prices increased greatly around World War I, fell off in 1922, recovered till 29, and then declined. The 20s were the real heyday for trapping. Beaver and lynx brought Black River trappers up to $100 a piece in the 1920s. Oh my goodness. Fox and marten were worth about $50. During this period, the transit Kuchin earned more than ever before or since, and some became quite wealthy. Can you imagine? I bet there was a lot of competition for trap lines back then. During the Depression in the 1930s, prices declined, but they experienced another boom during World War II then dropped again in the 50s. In recent years, this is, remember, early 70s, late 60s, fur has slowly increased in value until the Chakitsik Kuchin feel that trapping is once again paying off. During the period of this study, trappers are getting from 10 to $25 for marten, 10 to 30 for mink, 20 to 60 for lynx, 15 to 35 for beaver, 10 to 25 for fox, and about a dollar for muskrat. There was no evidence at this time that fur prices are being influenced by the ecology movement and its associated opposition to trapping and the use of animal pelts. The following statistics on trapline earnings for 1969-70 are estimates based on trapper statements about catches, prices paid, and estimates of total fur take multiplied by average prices at the time. The highest earnings by a man who remained out on the trapline for much of the winter ran to about $3,000. I just ran that $3,000 through an online inflation calculator, and it appears that the value of $3,000 back then would be equal to a little over $19,000 today. So nineteen grand, pretty sweet for a few months on the trap line, huh? Another man who shared some of his take with partners probably brought in between $1,500 and two grand worth of pelts. A man who trapped mostly alone earned about a thousand, and two others who ran their lines together grossed about six hundred apiece. There were probably several more trappers who made around five hundred, then a group below them who made anywhere from five hundred down to about twenty-five, fifty dollars. It's extremely difficult to estimate the net income. A large cash outlay is necessary for trapping, but the equipment serves many other purposes and is usually paid for with wage labor or welfare money. Trapping is an important assist toward meeting winter living expenses, replacing old equipment, and purchasing some luxury goods. The active trappers are, in short, making enough money to pay their expenses and earn something besides. 
Trapping is a winter job for them in a place where other wage-earning employment is nearly impossible to come by. Modern trapping incomes are only a fraction of what's been earned in the past. To some extent, this results from changes in fur prices. More important, however, the effort put into trapping was far greater years ago than it is today. If there had been any trapping operations in this region that equaled the effort expended by trappers 30 years ago, they might well have earned somewhere between $5,000 and $8,000. And that, according to the inflation calculator, would be equal to 30 to 50 grand. So what he's saying is, if they put in real serious effort like the guys did back in the day, uh, they could be making uh, essentially a full-time wage during the few months of winter trapping season. An old man who was formerly one of the best trappers in the whole region trading into Fort Yukon quoted his best catches for several fur species. In different years, he had taken 180 lynx, 175 mink, 120 marten, 315 fox, and 2,200 muskrats. This one man caught as many of each species as some entire villages in other regions are able to produce. In his best year of trapping, he made $15,000. This is probably around World War I when fur prices were very high, and he was not the only man who made this much money at some time in his career. Now that is almost difficult to believe. $15,000 in 1916 in the middle of World War I would have been worth three hundred forty-three grand today. Can you imagine making that kind of money as a trapper? Um, the guy was rich. That that real wealth. So anyway, but those are big, big numbers and a lot of work to put up. I can't imagine how someone made that type of catch. Other old men, less exceptional in their abilities, quote their top earnings in the seven thousand to ten thousand dollar range, which is you know, you're still talking big money. <clears throat> like uh what what people on Wall Street make today. Younger men achieved their highest incomes during the 1940s when a good trapper made about $5,000, perhaps up to seven in some cases. Needless to say, it's not always been so good, but I have no data which could be used to figure average annual income for Chalkitic trappers. Comparative statistics on fur takes and trapping incomes from other regions clearly indicate that the Transit Kuchin exploit an extremely rich area. In the Huslia Hughes region of the Koyukuk River, this is where uh, James and Sidney Huntington uh, lived and trapped, uh, the older men quote their maximum trapping incomes as around $3,000. The best old trapper in Huslia once made something around $4,000. In 1943, when fur prices were relatively high, trappers at Fort Nelson, British Columbia earned $3,000 to $4,000. At Nelson Forks, not far away, earnings were $1,500 to $3,000. These statistics are scattered, but they indicate that the Transit Kuchin have been productive trappers in the past. The Black River and Porcupine River country is ideal habitat for fur bears because it's diversified. There are extensive marshy flats with a multitude of lakes and sloughs, excellent for muskrat, beaver, and mink. The neighboring hills are fine marten country, with fair numbers of wolves and wolverines. When snowshoe hares are common, lynx are found everywhere. Fox are also abundant at times, especially along the river courses. The country has a wide variety of habitats, and perhaps this has something to do with its wealth and furs. Beyond this, the success of the Transit Kuchin must relate to an attitude toward trapping as a way of life. The old-timers speak of trapping as if it were their highest aim in life, their greatest interest and concern. These older Kuchin consider themselves trappers first and foremost. Because of this attitude toward trapping, 
The Kuchin perhaps worked at it more ambitiously than some other northern Athabascan peoples. This, thus the rich land was vigorously exploited and high trapping yields, with high trapping yields as the result. So a couple of interesting pointers, points that I took out of that was, number one, uh, that's probably the reason that Fort Yukon was established as a fur trading area. Uh, because it was recognized that there were high densities of fur bears. It was a unique area that had a lot of fur in it and, and very good habitat for a variety of fur bear species. And uh, number two, it would have been really awesome to meet some of those old-timer trappers. Um, and I talked to somebody who has had met some of them, and, and uh, pretty amazing it it must have been quite an experience being a young trapper moving up into that area and getting to spend some time with these guys and talking with them. The guys that, that made big money on the fur line and trapping was their way of life. Pretty awesome stuff. So anyway, I'll link to Hunters in the Northern Forest in the show notes of the podcast. It Really, if you're interested in this stuff, you ought to pick up a copy of this book. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on a bunch of different websites. Uh, again, I'll have a link. And uh, check it out. It's pretty cool stuff. And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Trapping Today podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. i got to go to bed so I can get up and check traps. Until next time, keep on thinking, trapping, talking, trapping. Get out and set some traps, and we will catch you on the next episode.